The world's changing. We've all sensed it. The prophecy is clear. Our duty is to protect the girl and the boy, wherever they are. Something happened in this world. People are going to be looking for us. And I'm looking for a girl named Lyra. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's season two, episode five, The Scholar. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. I'm Laura Miller. I'm books and culture columnist for Slate, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki. In this episode, Lyra and Will steal the alethiometer back from Lord Boreal. Cardinal McPhail begins the great magisterium purge. Mary Malone goes on a trip. And Mrs. Coulter considers blue jeans. A lot of exciting things happen in this episode. We're going to go in depth today into the scholar of the title, or really, the scholars, because this episode makes the argument that you can't talk about Mary Malone without talking about Mrs. Coulter. As always on The Authority, we're talking about the worlds of His Dark Materials without spoiling the story of His Dark Materials. We'll fill in some blanks, talk about the way the book treats these scenes, and investigate characters, but we won't discuss what's in store. So unless you're allergic to knowing anything outside the bounds of the TV show, you should find our podcast spoiler-free. And we're here to answer your questions. If you've got a burning question about His Dark Materials and you can't figure out how to ask your lithiometer, email asktheauthority at slate.com. This week, we've got the same question from two different listeners, Dan Letier and David Hendricks. They both want to know, if the windows are just sitting there, the windows between the worlds, that is, why haven't more people walked through them? Can only some people see them? Well, Dan and Dave, in this week's episode, Mrs. Coulter asks basically the same thing. Of course, Lord Broyles like, oh, no, no one else could ever be as smart as me and find the windows, but he's wrong. People do find these windows all the time, windows that previous bearers, bearers before Will, left open. John Perry found one, for example. He found it because it had existed in the frozen north of Alaska for centuries. The Eskimos, according to the books, had used it all that time as part of an initiation ceremony for medicine men. And also, cats find them. (laughs) Right, cats find them. Will finds his first one because a cat walks right through it. Right. But for the most part, the bearers seem to have been careful to cut the windows in inconspicuous places like the wilds of Alaska. Although the one that Will finds in the book, in The Subtle Knife, the one that the cat walks through, isn't in Alaska. It isn't even in the protected little garden of the TV show. It's on a kind of a median island in the middle of Sunderland Avenue in Oxford, right where it intersects the Oxford Ring Road. You can look up this location on a map and see that the uh, on Google Street View, the hornbeam trees are still there, the hornbeam trees that, uh, that Philip Pullman describes. Here's how the window is described in The Subtle Knife when Will finds it, and this might help listeners understand why it is that more people don't walk through these windows all the time. It looked as if someone had cut a patch out of the air, about two yards from the edge of the road, a patch roughly square in shape and less than a yard across. If you were level with the patch so that it was edge-on, It was nearly invisible, and it was completely invisible from behind. You could see it only from the side nearest the road, and you couldn't see it easily even from there, because all you could see through it was exactly the same kind of thing that lay in front of it on this side, a patch of grass lit by a streetlight. 
but Will knew without the slightest doubt that the patch of grass on the other side was in a different world. Yet, nevertheless, as we've pointed out, he only sees it because he sees the cat walk through it. So arguably, it's hard to see the windows unless you're actually looking for them and there's a reason for you to be looking for one there. I think that that could be the case um, since so much of how the subtle knife works has to do with being in a certain frame of mind. Right. Dust looks for you if you're looking for it. Right. Um, and even John Perry, who says to Lee Scoresby that he walked through that first window in Alaska by accident while sort of getting lost in a blizzard, was looking for windows. He may have been himself been in that frame of mind. If you go looking for something, it comes to you as well. So I buy this theory, yeah. So let's talk about this episode and all that happens in it. We're going to get to our deep dive on Mary Malone and Mrs. Coulter in a bit, but I want to start out by talking about the action centerpiece of this episode, which is the heist, Lyra and Will's heist of the alethiometer from Sir Charles Latram's extremely fancy house. They figure out that uh, Latram's house corresponds in his world, in his Oxford, with the location of the tower in Chittagaze in the world that they're hanging out in. Will, finally, after a lot of experimentation, learns not to to strain at the knife like he's trying to deadlift a bookcase. Uh, He learns to just be chill about it, and he starts to get better at cutting these windows between worlds. We should also be clear that Sir Charles Latram and Lord Boreal are the same guy. Oh, yeah. I use them interchangeably. He's Sir Charles Latram when he's being particularly stuffy and rich, and he's Lord Boreal when he's flirting with Mrs. Coulter. (laughs) So, like Lyra with the alethiometer, Will has proven to be a pretty quick study with the knife. He has like a few difficulties at first, but then he masters it or he at least succeeds at it. And there's even a scene where um, in in this episode where Pan says, oh, he's getting good at this. And Lyra says he is. And Paradisi, the former, former knife bearer, complimented Will on how quickly he learns to use it. There's something about Will and Lyra that enables them to use these artifacts like the alethiometer and the knife almost instinctively, or let's say intuitively, when other different people have to work very hard at it. And partly this is because both devices have intentions of their own. The knife chooses Will as its bearer, and the alethiometer clearly sees an important purpose for Lyra in the greater scheme of things that she's caught up in much in the same way that the witch's prophecy does. But, and this is an an important point, Will and Lyra are still children, and the other people we see trying to learn how to use the alethiometer and the knife are adults. We'll find out later why that distinction is so important. It's interesting to think about the devices having intentions of their own, and it's also interesting to think that it's possible those intentions aren't the same, that alethiometer and the knife seem to be operating under similar principles, and maybe even by similar mechanisms, but that doesn't mean that they ha- they want the same things necessarily, and that becomes an issue later on in this story. So in Chitagaze, uh, while they're while Will is practicing the knife, and while they're trying to figure out where they should be cutting these windows, they run into Tulio, who's now the sh- a shell of his former self because he's been eaten by specters. Uh, he's being uh, consoled, or at least plucked at, by his sisters Angelica and Paolo, and they are pissed at what has happened to him, and pissed. When Lyra and Will foolishly start apologizing for it, uh, Angelica hisses, we'll get you. Yes, they blame Will and Lyra because uh, Will has the knife, and the knife was the only thing that was protecting Tulio from the specter. So they consider Will and Lyra to have done this to Tulio. 
An important point for Pullman, and one that he makes over and over again in this book, is that children may be innocent in some sense, but they are not necessarily good. In this book in particular, we see children behaving in malevolent ways, in frightening ways. And this is something that Will says more than once he has seen just as the result of having his mentally ill mother, you know, either being ostracized by by other kids or actually witnessing kids picking on his mother. So he has seen the dark side of children in a way that even Lyra hasn't. Uh, yes, although children who deal with Lyra in Oxford maybe feel that they have seen the dark side of children. <laughs> True that, yeah. She goes after them. So that night, Will and Lyra enact their plan, which is basically to cut their way from the Chitagaze world into Lord Boreal's house, with hopefully without him ever knowing that they're doing it. The knife is a really good tool for heisting, which is maybe, I mean, to come to think of it, the whole entire reason that Lord Boreal wants it in the first place. So Lyra rings the doorbell to distract him while Will sneaks into the basement library, but everything gets all thrown awry when Mrs. Coulter discovers him trying to get the alethiometer. And boy, does this scene, this heist scene, diverge from the book. It, it really does. In the book, Lyra and Will have this sort of elaborate sort of scheme, and they use the knife to creep stealthily around Lord Boreal's house, moving between this world and Chitagaza and back again, so that they can be completely unseen. It's it's just a, a like a it's like a stealth video game in a way, um, and and in the process of doing this, they eavesdrop on a conversation between Boreal and Mrs. Coulter, which reveals a lot of key information, such as what Asriel is up to, which is something that doesn't even come up in this episode, and the fact that his anomaly in the book has changed the windows between the worlds so that it's now possible for people to travel from Lyra's world directly to Will's world without going through Chitagaza. The series, probably pretty sensibly, has decided to just forget that whole (laughs) development. Um, Lord Boreal also explains in the book that he's been working as a spy in Will's world, and that's the source of sort of his power and influence. In the series, he started a company, so he's like a startup guy, (laughs) which is just to, to I mean, per, it's why he's driving fitting. a Tesla. It's, it helps to clarify yeah. the exact kind of asshole he's turning into. Yeah, yeah. So while Will is is sort of hiding and trying to locate the alethiometer so he can snatch it in the book and also in the series, the golden monkey discovers him. And there's a lot of sort of rushing around and chasing and the, and the golden monkey almost causes Lyra to be captured, but then the cat that Will and Lyra saved in Chitagaza from being, a, you know, the children were were tormenting it, that cat attacks the monkey and then jumps back through the window, back to Chitagaza. Will is definitely a person who is much favored by cats. So in the, in the, in the book, the two of them escape, and there's not really any real interaction between Lyra and her mother. That is put off for yet another day, let alone a battle between their demons. So yeah, here instead we get a whole scene that's a confrontation between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra in which Mrs. Coulter seems to be holding out a kind of olive branch in the form of the alethiometer. She offers to give her the alethiometer. She says she wants to teach her about dust. It seems like what she wants is to bond with Lyra, to reclaim her in some way, perhaps inspired by conversations in this episode she's had with Boreal and with Mary Malone. And she tells her, stay away from that boy. 
He will do you nothing but harm, which suggests real shades of her own past, the way that her dalliance with Azrael ruined her prospects in her world. Lyra says, I'm nothing like you, and she hisses at Mrs. Coulter, and then Pan leaps at the monkey demon. Woo! You know, this sort of answers a question you had from an early episode. Which question? You wanted to know how big demons could get when they were still changeable? Well, Pan turns into a... Saki, what do you think that is? Uh, Fisher? No, too gray. A honey badger? I turned into one of those ones. Great teeth, doesn't give a... etc. They're more white on the top of their heads, though. Uh, Wolverine, maybe? That seems right. Anyway, when you're changeable and you go on the attack, you get as big as you can get. So, that Wolverine, or whatever it is, has got to be about the upper limit of Pan's size. I mean, it sure works, because he really throws that monkey around. Laura, what do you think about this big change to the book? I have to say, I, I don't really love this scene. And it's particularly for the fight between the demons, which I just feel is too intense of a confrontation at a sort of middling point in the plot. I mean, it is true that there is nothing that will make a a girl more angry than to tell her that she's like her mother. (laughs) But but to me, it feels like it could have been played way down. Although I also feel like I'm also the person who, who doesn't care about fight scenes and generally views them as a, as a really great time to head into the kitchen looking for a snack. So I may not be the right person. To- I really liked this divergence, actually. And I'm, I'm the one who's often complaining about this shit. But, you know, the, the sort of Ocean's Eleven style sneaky theft that's in the books is intricate and fun. But I found this much more exciting and scary, both her encounter with Mrs. Coulter and Will's encounter with Boreal. And the exchange between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra seems revelatory for Lyra, right? Who later says she she doesn't like the way that she felt when Pan yeah. attacked the demon. And it's really, re-watching it is, it is not that much of a fight. It is this Wolverine just fucking tossing this monkey around. Yeah, it's a reversal of that scene where the, the monkey subdues Pan in Mrs. Coulter's flat in London. Right, right. Yeah. And she says she doesn't like that feeling, but it seems to me that for whatever it is that the series has cooking up for Mrs. Coulter and her relationship with Lyra, which seems to me to be maybe very different from what the books cook up for the the culmination of that relationship, this seems to me to be a potentially important moment. And so let's zip back to the beginning of this episode and talk about what Mrs. Coulter has gone through in her visit to our Oxford. So Boreal brings her to Oxford and he's giving her, he's bringing her the best coffee in Oxford. And she's looking at all of these people who seem to her to be, well, who can tell? She sees a woman with a laptop and a baby. There's obviously a lot going on in her head looking at this alternate version of the world. And meanwhile, Lord Boreal who has always seemed so supremely smooth, just becomes a complete dork, you know? And he's boasting about his stupid collection, and he's showing off his stereo speakers, no less. I mean, the only way they could have made it worse was by giving him a collection of electric guitars and having him (laughs) show them to her. But um, of all of his games, his seduction game is drastically remedial. He has no idea how to seduce 
a woman, especially a woman like Mrs. Coulter, and she is really unimpressed. I will say the sound out of his speakers is really extraordinary, as he says. <laughs> but yes, you're right. It's like the only thing that could have been worse of is, is if he pulled out his vinyl. Yeah. Been like, yeah. let me play a little something for you. For those who are curious, that smooth track that he has chosen is a popular London soul duo from the mid-90s called the Lighthouse Family. Made no impact whatsoever in the United States, but very popular briefly in the 90s in the UK. It's definitely what would be playing in the <laughs> lounge at 2 a.m. What Mrs. Coulter is interested in is not Lord Boreal, but it is his mention of Mary Malone and the fact that Lyra was interested enough in Mary Malone to stop by her lab. So she decides she wants to meet her. And Boreal insists that she changes her clothes because Mary Malone would definitely be suspicious if a femme fatale stepped straight out of a film noir and showed up in her office. This episode answers the eternal question, would Marissa Coulter wear jeans? And the answer is no. She would not wear jeans. No, 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 no. There's a great little moment in this scene where she's about she's you know about to change and she sort of shoes him out of the room and Boreal stands there and he makes this little hmm sound which is her trademark mannerism. You know, it, you could you could make a supercut of Mrs. Coulter going hmm, hmm, hmm. I got to say in general this episode is the most comedy rich of any episode yeah. so far like just this little scene of her you know perusing jeans is fantastic. And the comedy, I think, only continues when Mrs. Coulter locks her monkey demon in the bedroom so she can head off to the college on her own. Comedy? Beg to differ, Dan. Yes, Gilda. I supposed a demon would not enjoy the scene at all. It's positively cruel what she does to that poor monkey. Wait, are you seriously implying that you feel sorry for the monkey? He's a perversion of a self-respecting demon. But isn't he what his human has made him? I mean, isn't Mrs. Coulter's self-hatred what makes him act that way? He still has a choice. He could behave better. Look, I'm no fan of the monkey, but this episode is so mean to him. Locking him in a bedroom, getting attacked and thrown around by Pan, that's awful. And making him wear a (laughs) seatbelt? Don't you dare laugh at that. I always wear a seatbelt when Laura and I drive in the car. It's just safer. (laughs) He's so cute in his little harness. Totally humiliating. (laughs) Oh, God. So, after her makeover... Mrs. Coulter stops by Mary Malone's lab, and like the encounter a few episodes back between Mrs. Coulter and Lee Scoresby, this scene in the series is a complete invention. It does not appear in the books. So we're going to focus on it in this week's deep dive, because I think it's useful to think about who is Mary Malone, and what does her life tell us about the life of Mrs. Coulter? So, Laura, we know that Mary Malone used to be a nun before she became a scientist. She talks to Lyra about that. The show gives her a sister and some nieces, but no other strong family connections or romantic connections. So what do we know about Dr. Mary Malone? Without spoiling too much about what we might learn about her later, what is it about her that makes her your favorite character? Well, what I love about Mary is her curiosity. And we talked in the last episode about what Pullman considers to be goodness in a person. And I think that this quality, curiosity, is part of that. But there's a difference between the sort of open curiosity of Mary Malone and the more directed curiosity of, say, Lord Boreal or Mrs. Coulter or even Lord Asriel. Mary isn't after power glory. She's not single-minded. She's not blinkered the way those characters are. There's this sort of patient humility to her curiosity. She wants to understand the world around her. 
And she also wants to understand her effect on it. She is not the type to tear a hole between the universes without considering the consequences to the world or creatures besides herself. And it's precisely because she's open in this way that she is able to readily grasp that Lyra is from another world. I mean, Mary's not a fool. She mistrusts Lord Boreal. She knows the pale-faced man is up to no good. But she has this openness to what she sees that is, in some ways, the essence of, of, a, of a scientist. And she doesn't insist on imposing an existing framework on it. So she's, she's willing and able to make the leap to appreciating who Lyra really is. In the book, a, a lot of this openness is sort of presented in these little asides of, well, we're about to lose our funding, so I might as well. Or, well, this wouldn't even be the weirdest thing that's happened to me today, so I guess I'll give it a try. You know, I guess I'll hook my I Ching up to the, to the, uh, to the computer, to the cave. Um, but I think it's not only that. And I agree with you that, um, this openness and curiosity that is the difference between her kind of science and the quote unquote science that Lord Asriel is pursuing, which is really a single minded quest for something which we don't quite know what it is yet. You know, he has, he makes a lot of big statements, but what it is he actually intends to do is sort of between him and his demon. Um, I, what I really like about her as well is the way that her open-mindedness seems to track with the, the, the muddiness of the thing that she's studying, right? These, these shadow particles are themselves mysteries and mysteries that only come to you when you open yourself up, as she says, when you open your mind in a particular way in order to observe them. They're observing you as much as you're observing them. And I like that this character note about her, this openness and curiosity, is the exact reason why, when led gently in the right direction by Lyra, she is the person that Dust chooses to communicate with in the way that it does. And of course, she's in the right place. She's got the lab and the computers and everything. But it's clear that that Dust does this because she's right. She's the person who Dust feels is the is the right person to take the next step, the the giant step that Mary Malone takes in this episode. And um, and you mentioned that she's no fool, but she also is open to new experiences and open to new ideas. And so it, that's why it's very touching to see this scene between Mary Malone and Mrs. Coulter, in which Mary Malone is cautious with Mrs. Coulter, but she's also interested in her. She's interested in what this, what she believes to be this scientist and what she believes to be the mother of this extraordinary person who she's met, Lyra Silvertongue, what this person might offer her, what she might be able to lean to learn from her. So let's listen to a little bit of this scene between Mary and Mrs. Coulter. I wanted to apologize to you in person in case she was a nuisance. She wasn't a nuisance in the slightest... I loved meeting Lyra. It was the most interesting conversation I've had in ages. The ideas she has. What ideas are those? Well, about the morality of dark matter. Or, um, what does she call it? Dust. Her grasp on quantum physics is astonishing. And the compass. The alethiometer. Yes, how she's able to understand it, I have no idea. It's extraordinary. What do you think it means to Mrs. Coulter to hear these things about Lyra from this to her very odd person, this female scholar? 
Well, I think she realizes that in a way she barely knows Lyra, that she's never really had a conversation with her that would enable her to see what Mary's seen in Lyra. When the two of them briefly lived together in London, Mrs. Coulter treated Lyra like a sort of mini-me. You know, she was basically instructing her on how to be like her, and that is how to control herself, how to be feminine in this very conventional way, and how to regard the world as she does, as, you know, like a, a, a sort of network of advantages that she can latch onto if she's skillful enough. Um, so this is like a problem that some parents have, this inability to perceive their children as independent people and not just as extensions of themselves. And it's in line with Mrs. Coulter's idea that, that she, there was really only one kind of person that she could be and therefore only one kind of person that Lyra could be. So talking to this person who has seen Lyra in this completely different way and who clearly comes from a completely different idea and is an expression of a completely different idea of what women can be in this world, I think is a really potent moment for Mrs. Coulter on a couple of different levels as she starts to think about not only that she never really saw Lyra and barely knows her, but that the the version, as you say, of herself that she was presenting to Lyra is a version that she is becoming more and more disillusioned with. And, and Mary asked Mrs. Coulter to tell her more about her research, experimental theology, which of course she's never heard of because it doesn't exist in her world. <laughs> um, she asked her what she's published. She asked her the questions that scientists ask each other when they respect each other, when they're genuinely curious in each other's work. And as soon as that happens, Mrs. Coulter is out the fucking door. And this scene, I, you know, in a in a way similar to the Coulter-Lee Scoresby scene, this scene plays a little bit like fan fiction, kind of, right? It's mm-hmm. two characters who never meet, but you're curious about what would happen if they do meet. In fact, I, I went straight over to um, uh, an archive of our own to see if such fan fiction exists. And there is, in fact, a story written just a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, at least one, that is a version of this very encounter of Mrs. Coulter showing up at Mary Malone's office to talk to her. Now that scene is um, a bit more sexually charged (laughs) as is the tradition often in fan fiction. Um, But it's, it has similar dynamics and, and it plays with similar things. And so it was so fascinating for me to see this and I really liked it as an addition to this world. What did you think of this addition to this world? I I really liked this, too. One, of course, Ruth Wilson, amazing actress. And in, in her face, we see so many things. We see, one, you know, her realization that this daughter that she loves so much, she barely knows. We see, two, her picking up this paper with Mary Malone's name on it. And in that, she is feeling just the loss and the waste of her her talents and her intellect. I mean, she is sort of on top in her own world. I mean, she's always so elegant and poised and in command, um, however subtly she, you know, exerts her power. But Mary really makes her feel inadequate. And then, you know, the, another thing that I'm, I'm just realizing as I think about this is that she also, there's, you know, she leaves when Mary says, oh, I'll make you a cup of coffee, let's sit down and talk. And it made me think about whether Mrs. Coulter has any friends and I don't think she really does. And so she's also possibly seeing someone who in another life could have been her friend, another better version of herself, you know, just all the things that make this woman who seems so desirable and so um, quiffed and, and, 
and effective, you know, um, just feel completely broken and inadequate. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I've never really thought about whether Mrs. Coulter has friends because how could a creature so elevated even need friends? She has her social circle that comes to the party. But yeah, I don't think that she has anyone really to talk to. And, and unlike everyone else in her world, she doesn't even really have her demon to talk to. She right. doesn't have that lifelong companion who everyone is supposed to have. So she's even more isolated than anyone else in her world is. And the notion of just sitting down with this person who, if she had lived a different life, could have just been a colleague or a friend or someone she just likes to shoot the shit about experimental theology with is painful for her. And um, you see these these losses, you know, sort of piling up and they all come out in a way in the conversation afterwards that she, the scene between Coulter and Boreal in the library in which Lord Boreal asks her, well, what did you think of Mary Malone? And her answer, and then the way that Boreal interprets that answer is really fascinating to me. Let's listen to a little bit of that moment. How do you define Malone? Impertinent. I found her arrogant, like many women in this world. Do you find me arrogant? Of course not. Take a breath, Marisa. You're clearly upset. Did you know when I was an honorary scholar, I achieved the highest results in our final examination? But because I was a woman, I was denied a doctorate by the Magisterium. I've written plenty of papers. But they're only published if I agree to let a man take the credit. So I'm so interested by what is happening to Marissa Coulter right now. So right before this scene, we see her rejecting her monkey demon. Sorry, Gilda, that's what she does. Right after this scene is the moment where Lyra and Will break in and we see her make this kind of offering to her daughter, so what do you think the show is doing with this character? What direction is it pointing her in? And Laura, do you think that it works? Well, I mean, there's two ways to look at this. As we talked about in the last episode, Mrs. Coulter is being confronted by one figure after another who represents an alternate path she might have taken. The witches in their freedom, Lee Scoresby in his ability to get past the abuse in his past and not perpetuate it. And now Mary Malone, who isn't rich or powerful or glamorous like uh, Mrs. Coulter, but who has been able to fulfill herself in a way Mrs. Coulter has never been able to. So when she's looking at Lyra, she could either see finally an opportunity for connection and to be genuine and to be nurturing and to be a mother. I mean, we do see her looking at a mother with a baby in a stroller at the beginning of the episode. Or she could be seeing in Lyra a version of herself with all that potential and courage. And maybe that's who Lyra really is. But Lyra does not want to be told that she's like her mother. And if she weakens at all during that offer, you know, I'll teach you about dust. I mean, it's not completely clear to me that, that Lyra is a wannabe scholar. So I don't know how even genuine this reaching out is if if she is not, if Mrs. Coulter is not in fact reaching out to sort of the girl she once was more than to the girl that Lyra actually is. It's certainly um, genuine in the sense that it's, as of right now, it's all that Mrs. Coulter knows about her. Yes. Yes, it's true. It's true. She knows that Lyra has been going 
to the to the lab and and talking to Mary Malone and asking about dust and learning about dust. But she had she lived with Lyra for a while, and Lyra is not like I I guess Lyra will maybe eventually become a scholar, but the child she's she is right now is more of an adventurer than anything else. So it's it's it, you could look at it either way. I think it's it's open to both interpretations. But what is really clear is that the meeting with Mary Malone has just really cracked Mrs. Coulter open. And after that, she has to go back to uh, Lord Boreal's lair. And he's just <laughs> fatuous in the way he patronizes her and views her as a collectible. And, and it causes her to lash out at him in a way that she hasn't so far in the past. I think you're right that this meeting has been crucial for her. And I think that the scholars, plural, that are the subject of this episode uh, are going to continue to be very important in watching the directions that they go from this meeting. I think it's going to be good to view this meeting as an inflection point for each of them and that the the paths it sends them on are going to be crucial to the way that this series ends and the way that this series views the the roles that it's primary grown women can play in the future of the the worlds that it encompasses. So, uh, yeah, so Boreal doesn't take the hint uh, from Marissa Coulter that she, her continued hints that she is just not the lady for him. And he straight up says, like, in showing you all this, I was showing you this because I thought this might be a life that you would want to share. First of all, Ew, um, he's already made it clear he does not like arrogant women as he views the women of, of this world. And second of all, we've had a bunch of questions about Lord Boreal throughout. We tried to untangle him a little last episode. Are there new things that we learn about him here? What what does this episode tell us about Carlo Boreal? I mean, it confirms that he is some kind of profiteer, that he's a collector, that his attitude towards Mrs. Coulter is that of a collector, which she accuses him of. And he just, you know, his inability to see that, of of course, she's incredibly arrogant. How could he not think she was arrogant? And, you know, like, has he not been paying any attention at all? So, you know, it could be just that he's, He's just way more of an idiot than he seemed before. I mean, I feel like this episode really flips him. I guess, you know, this is partly a symptom of what Pullman himself sometimes calls his Potemkin village approach to, like, world building. He would get questions from fans about aspects of Lyra's world and how demons work, and there were questions he'd never considered because, as he often put it, he wants to create enough of a world to make an environment for the story to move forward, but he's not like one of these model railroad builder, builder type authors like J.R.R. Tolkien. He he just wants to move the story forward. And I have a feeling that while he was mostly talking about the environments and the setting for his novels, it might also be the case that Lord Boreal is a bit of a Potemkin village character. And a Potemkin village is, maybe I should explain that, it's like the false fronts of old Western buildings that were used as sets for movie productions when people didn't want to have to build a whole building. And it was something that was set up when a czar, I don't know which one, was traveling around Russia. People would put up these villages that looked 
these fake villages that looked great so that the czar would be would be complacent about the excellent condition of the Russian countryside when exactly the opposite was the case. Yeah, and you know, I do think that you're potentially right that in that this character serves various needs for Philip Pullman to just get things moving and that that's the kind of character who often seems the most inconsistent in an adaptation, the character who who's a, a purely a plot character but who when you in, when you he's inhabited by an actual living breathing actor, particularly a good actor, just like doesn't track exactly. Um and as we've said in the books, he's much more of a doofus. And in this scene, he seems much more under, uh, even under Mrs. Coulter's spell, not even wooing her, but just sort of like bewitched by her. Um, and that happens again and again to him. And so I think that hunting for characterization that remains consistent for Lord Boreal in this story may be maybe a hunt that w- will just disappoint people but maybe there's some maybe he, there's something that still awaits him that will surprise us in this series they certainly have a good enough actor for it that if there's some turn he's going to take that we don't understand i believe that this actor can absolutely pull it off me too so a- i agree yeah so after the alethiometer is stolen um boreal now explains to mrs coulter why he's, he thinks they can't go after the children in Chitagaze. He explains about the specters, that they inhabit this world and that they get adults. And it's when he says that they get adults and not children that Mrs. Coulter makes this connection between specters and dust, and she says something curious, something that seems like it's going to have ramifications. Well, once you understand something, you can master it. Yeah. This series is and, and, and the trilogy is a, kind of a long quest to understand dust. And while it's true, once you can understand something, you are more likely to be able to master it. But mastering dust seems like a pretty tall order. Yeah. Well, we'll see what she pulls off. Meanwhile, over at the Magisterium, the Fraws are already starting to rumble with discontent under the new Cardinal McPhail. They're losing control over the North, the witches just blew up a bunch of their Zeppelins. So Cardinal McPhail pulls a Stalin and um, basically comes up with a pretext for accusing Father Graves of doubt and throwing him into the dungeons. And then he orders Fra Pavel, who seems completely gormless in this scene, to find out what Mrs. Coulter is up to using the alethiometer. So we should have full results on that one in the next seven to eight months. (laughs) And dear Mary Malone... In her lab, after her encounter with Mrs. Coulter, gets a message from Dust. Let's listen to that message. You must play the serpent. You have been preparing for this as long as you have lived. You must make a journey which starts at Hornbeam. Hornbeam. Deceive the Guardian. Find the entrance. So I checked the closing credits this week, and I learned that this voice of Dust, the voice we like so much, it is the, I assume, heavily processed voice of the actress Sophie Okanedo, and that that voice has a name. The name is not Dust. The name is Zephania. Ooh, that's a mysterious and exotic name. <laughs> um, 
Mary does succeed in obeying the, the dust gives her these orders. You must deceive the guardian. They all sound like the orders given to a character in a Greek myth, but that's exactly what she does. Lord Boreal has set up some kind of checkpoint at the uh, window where the hornbeam trees are. And she goes there, and there's a guy who's guarding it, and she, she kind of tricks him to think she's Mrs. Coulter, which is a nice touch. Um, she is the good mother figure to Mrs. Coulter's bad. And then she walks through the window, and boom, she's in Chittagaza. The ease with which she fooled that guardian suggests that, once again, Lord Boreal, Sir Charles Latrum, may not be uh, as clever as we once thought he was. <laughs> if you judge a person by the worth of the people he employs, he seems to have a Trump-like ability to find just the most hapless, idiotic henchmen and set them off in various jobs that they then completely fail to do. In the books, there's actually the the guard actually has a line that's like, "Well, good thing you're not Mary Malone because I've been told to arrest her if I see her." And she's like, "Oh no, I'm not her." Uh, so, Mary Malone is now in Chittagaze. Um, Zephania, the voice, promised her that she would be protected. Presumably, she meant from specters. And boy, do I hope she's right, because uh, I do not want the series taking a turn and just immediately having Mary Malone be devoured by specters. That would suck. I expect we will find out what happens in episode six, Malice. So, please join us then for that episode. In the meantime, talk to us. We want to hear from you on Twitter. I'm at Dan Coyce, and Laura is at Magician's Book. And you can email us a question or a comment at asktheauthority, all one word, at slate.com. Our producer is Phil Circus. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm Gilda. I'm Laura Miller. I'm Saki. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all. Mm, I'm Saki, and I'm quite safe in the car. <laughs> Shh! Hey! <laughs> <laughs>